Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we're going to learn a bit more about the science, the environment, and archaeology of our area, and how journalists and scientists are using new tools to tell these stories in compelling and meaningful ways. Ty E. Bridge, journalist and author of Heart of the Coast, will be joining us this week um, to talk a little bit about that book and some of his other work with the Hakai Institute and their work telling these stories in new and different ways. It's pretty exciting. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, the Klaaman, and the Mako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. So, Tai, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio. (laughs) I'm hoping you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved with the Hakai Institute. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background career-wise has been as a journalist. And um, I grew up, I was born in Canada, grew up in the U.S., moved back here when I was about 30 I'm dating myself there, but I moved back here when I was uh, in about 2000 and uh, was a freelance magazine journalist, magazine feature writing mostly, Um, did travel writing, essays, um, sort of focused most of my work, even though I was a bit all over the map, on progressive subjects, uh, progressive leaders, environmental subjects, did some work on salmon, uh, endangered white sturgeon in the Fraser and some of the cross-section of, of uh, environmental efforts with urban living, like uh, some of the what was done in Seattle around their waterfront area. So pretty, pretty mixed bag, but a lot of stuff that was sort of loosely speaking environmental. And um, the intersection with Hakai is sort of interesting. I don't know if it's interesting. It's a little complicated. But I was doing, uh, I was doing work for Hakai Magazine, which is affiliated with the Institute, and they do great work, uh, Jude Isabella and Dave Garrison and all the folks over there um, hire writers to do some pretty interesting science-related writing. And so I did some feature writing for them, wrote three features for them on various subjects. And sort of uh, concurrent with that, as a freelancer, you've always got multiple things on the go. And it's sort of uh, the years prior to that, I was helping Joel Solomon. You may know Joel up there from Cortez, um, write his book, The Clean Money Revolution, which was a book where he was talking about his life story, but also ways that you can invest your money to make the world a better place instead of a worse one. So 
So I kind of got into around 2017, uh, as you find living in Vancouver, being a freelance writer that you can't really make a living, just writing magazine work. I started helping uh, authors and institutions with their books. And that led me to write a book for Stowell Lake Farm on Salt Spring Island called Seven Seasons on Stowell Lake Farm. That was a pretty cool project uh, by a woman-led farm um, about organic farming and community. Um, and that was another book that sort of led me to down the path to working with um, some publishers that got me involved in another project, which was a, UB, a book for UBC. And this all leads to Hackeye because the UBC book um, called the UBC The Next Century had a section on it that interfaced with Hackeye and required that I get in touch with Eric Peterson, who heads up Hackeye and the Tula Foundation with his wife, Christina Monk. Um, I had to get in touch with Eric, sort of cross-check something about an initiative that they were doing at UBC, and that just sort of started us chatting about books and about Hackeye Institute, and um, uh, as I recall, anyway, in the course of our correspondence, Eric had emailed me something like, hmm, maybe someone should help me write a book about the Hackeye Institute, and after I learned a little bit more about what the Institute had done, and really, I, I to be honest, was quite ignorant about what the, the Institute was doing, I was amazed by all the work they were doing on archaeology, glaciology, marine food webs. Um, and I said, yeah, you should do a book. And so we did. And that was how Heart of the Coast got started. And I have Heart of the Coast, thanks to you, in my hand. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> um, and and um, beautiful to look at, but also well-written, uh, engaging stories, the whole thing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, give us a little bit of an overview of what someone's going to find inside sure. Heart of the Coast? Sure, and I do want to give a plug here. Um, Figure One Publishing is uh, who helped us pull that together, and they have such great designers and do such a great job. So if any of your listeners are uh, in a position where they want to do a book like that, I can't I recommend them high enough. They're great. They're not of Vancouver. Um, so yeah, so the book itself, um, Heart of the Coast, has a subtitle, Biodiversity and Resilience on the Pacific Edge. And really in the book, we're using the stories of Hakai researchers and projects that have been affiliated with Hakai just as kind of a springboard in each of the chapters that cover a lot of ground um, to talk about different aspects of life on the Pacific Coast of BC and different aspects of our ecosystem. So probably the best way I could sum it up would be... Um, Maybe if I just crib from the back of the book, actually, there's a great, we were, we labored over this little segment, so I'll just, I'll throw it out. So this is what it says on the back of the book. How do you dig up a 13,000-year-old footprint? Why are viruses vital to life in the ocean? And how can you measure a glacier from an airplane? What is a zombie urchin? So that was sort of the tagline to get people interested in. And with a summary, really, is that part of the coast is pursuing some of these strange and not, some of them are strange, some of them are not well-known. Uh, areas and aspects of, of ecology on the coast. And to do that, we um, all, I interviewed, I guess, 40-plus researchers um, from archaeologists to glaciologists to folks that are diving into the kelp forest off of Calvert Island um, to sort of illuminate some of the areas of where we live that most of us don't really get the chance to, to really get close to. And can you tell us just a tiny bit about the photography? It's such a, a stunning... Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, so there's a variety of photographers. A lot of the photography uh, goes down to Grant Caligari, and actually Grant and I 
Grant worked with me. We got to go down to Seattle together to swim around, oddly enough, and, and it's pretty strange to swim in front of Seattle's waterfront. But I was there with some researchers, and Grant joined me, and we swam around the Seattle waterfront and got to know each other well. Great photographer, incredibly talented guy. I won't go into his bio, but Grant Caligari with the Hacker Institute. Um, yeah, he's, he's this incredible renaissance man. He can build you a house. He can do incredible photography. Um, he's, he's really kind of an amazing cat. So he did a lot of it, but we also drew on other um, uh, photographers in BC, and I'm going to do them a terrible disservice by not remembering all of their names, but there was a variety of folks that helped us um, to pull these together. Um, Tavish Campbell was another one. Um, just, yeah, there's just so many talented photographers that are, have so much great work that they've been doing undersea and also in the terrestrial zone that um, we had a wealth to work with. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to science and how it is that you have made uh, what in many cases are, are pretty complicated ideas or somewhat technical uh, scientific research accessible to the average reader? Well, it's kind of you to say that I'm that I'm managing that. It's always the hope that what you write will be accessible. I think one of my strengths in, in that is that I'm ignorant. Like, I don't know. Whenever I do these projects, I'm usually learning everything from the ground up. So I think it's helpful when you come into a project with um, those kind of, that kind of naivete that it helps you to remember when you're writing it that you, you kind of remember where you were at when you started the project. Um, and that really gives you kind of a, empathy for the reader such that you're going to take them from ground zero to try to get them you know up to a certain level of understanding i do find that when you write um, pieces on scientific projects it's it's funny you have to you're working with scientists who have been doing these sorts of things for you know potentially for decades and um there's a challenge there in sort of translating what their great knowledge is to sort of the level that most of us are operating at and it's fun it's fun work to do I guess at the same time, you're always sort of a little bit nervous as to whether you've actually managed to pull it off. (laughs) Well, I think you do a great job. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about this later in our conversation. But I really also appreciate the way that you've expanded um, the journalist tools or the toolbox uh, in doing so. Uh, And certainly the photographs in this book are part of that. Uh, that make it come alive, as well as you have all these great little sidebars and side stories, et cetera. Um, so let's go a little bit deeper into one aspect of that. I want to start at the beginning, um, yeah. and, and which is the beginning being both in the book, but also that question you said at the beginning, right? The 13,000-year-old footprint. Let's talk a little bit about deep time and what we sure. know from the book about deep time. Yeah, I'm just wondering, should, should I read a bit, or how would you like to do it? I can talk about it generally, but I could also read some. To, why don't, should I, maybe I'll just start with reading a little bit of it. Yeah, read, a, read a little excerpt, yeah. That sounds great. Okay, let me just grab it here. I just got to get the book open. Yeah, and with a book like this, just speaking of the photographs and everything, what we were really trying to do is because there was a lot of scientific information, you really want to make it, break it up and give some, just show visually some of the beauty of the coast. And I think the photography really, really helped us out a lot in sort of conveying these information in a way that would be not too overwhelming. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, you know, on the reverse side, I guess this is one of the reasons that stood out is that um, 
it's such a beautiful, rich area, uh, both visually, but also historically and scientifically and everything else. And it's just like you're saying to bring, you know, naivety to richness. And how do you start to unfold that? And the photography uh, really does that. I mean, it's not, there's no part of it where you're like, oh, that's kind of an ugly photo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have, we certainly had that going for us was that we had such a, like I said, such a wealth of photos to deal, deal with. So now um, let's get to the wealth of words. Okay, I'll, I'll read a wee bit here. So this, this chapter is called Deep Time, um, and it's the subtitle Footprints of the Past, and I'll explain a little bit more about it once we get into it. 13,000 years ago, Two adults and a child were walking on an island in what is now British Columbia's central coast. The trio were in an area above the high tide line of a beach. They may have been foraging for berries or preparing food, or they may just have disembarked from a raft or a boat. Whether or not they were a family and whether their people lived on the island for generations or were recent arrivals is unknown. The fact of their presence there on that beach is not, because they unintentionally did something remarkable. They left more than two dozen footprints that would never be completely erased. And I'll just continue on. There's just, well, I'll do one more paragraph here to get the intro to the chapter. During the period that these three people were tramping the soft, clay-rich soil on what is now Calvert Island, the northeast Pacific coast looked very different than it does today. Earth was in the tail end of the last ice age, and ice sheets were still in the process of receding from the continent. Lower sea levels exposed areas of the continental shelf, connecting landforms that are now islands. And, and this is my favorite bit here, merging the future Alaska and Russia into a landmass called Beringia, a vast area of low-growing vegetation known as a mammoth steppe, S-T-E-P-P-E. Roamed by now extinct species such as mammoths, saiga antelope, scimitar cats, and giant short-faced bears. I love that stuff. I, I, I could geek out about Prince for a while, but I'll just continue here. Vegetation was also different. It would be over 4,000 years before cedar trees, one of the iconic species of coastal temperate rainforests on our coast, would advance north past the 49th parallel. So that gives a little intro there to kind of placing us in this idea of deep time. This is time, like, this is old, right? We're talking 13,000 years ago. It's 9,000 years before the Giza pyramids were built. So this is where we're talking way back. And I, I find that paleo uh, ecology stuff so interesting around, I mean, I was fascinated when I was doing this research to learn that cedar trees haven't always been here. Like, we think of the cedar tree as kind of the iconic, and it is, the iconic tree of, of our coast, but it's interesting to see how things shift and change and that they weren't always here. Um, it was, I guess, through your subtraction, it was probably 9,000 years ago that they really started to come north from California. It's, you know, like almost impossible to imagine the world at that time without these things that, uh, that orient us in place, right? The the yeah. trees, you know, like you know what it, what is yeah. this place without? So what was it like then? Yeah, no, it's, it's like it's a, it, and it is in a way doing this kind of work with archaeologists or, or talking to them. You sort of feel this almost like it's science fictiony in a way. You just feel like you're you're beginning to inhabit a place that 
has been altered so so strangely from what you understand it to be that it does feel like you're talking about a different world. But it but it really was. It was really where we are, and it's just a bit, bit different than it was now. And can, can, um, I can tell a little bit more about sort of what the chapter goes into, which is yeah. if you like, or I don't want, but I want to cut you off there. No, no, that's what I want you to do. It's perfect. So the the chapter, the deep time chapter, is about the work of a couple of archaeologists and their team, Duncan McLaren. Uh, and Daryl Feggi. They're both archaeological researchers, and they, they're with the University of Victoria. And they've been working with the Hakai Institute now for, I guess, over a decade. Um, and so they, they were interested in this area of Calvert Island, which is where um, Hakai has one of its uh, ecological observatories, as they're called. They have one right right there. Um, they were already interested in that area because through a sort of a quirk of, of luck, um, that happened to be a place where sea level was pretty stable. So, as I said before, um, uh, well, did I say before? I haven't said it yet. So, uh, let me back up here. So, let's put us put us back thirteen thousand years ago. That's when these people were walking on that beach on Calvert Island. But if you go back further, you go back to say nineteen thousand years ago, twenty six thousand years ago. That's what um, is known as the last glacial maximum. So that's the peak of the ice age. That's when these ice sheets that we now know, you know, were all the way across Canada and, and covering, you know, Canada all the way down to the 49th parallel, creeping into the U.S. Um, that's when they were at their peak. So the Ice Age and those, those, those sheets retreated, and they basically were gone um, as we know them um, 11,000, 12,000 years ago. But there was a point there when there was so much water bound up in these ice sheets that sea level globally was 120 meters lower than it is today. So this is another one of those things where it's like, I'm trying to get my head around that. And to be honest, I don't even really have a good picture of what that meant for our coast. There were certain areas that I know, uh, like Haida Gwaii, I think had much more exposed land than it does now. Like it, sea level sort of crept up on it. But if you look at other places, even in BC, um, at that time, because the water levels were so different and because the, um, it gets a bit technical, but ice sheets have this incredible mass. I mean, we're talking these sheets are like a kilometer or more thick. They have such weight that they deform the land. So some places in BC uh, and in other, other areas would have been, um, even as the ice sheets were receding, sort of bent out of shape and warped so that you had different sea levels. So in the interior of BC or in the, in, uh, the Fraser Valley, uh, sea level was quite different. It was forget how, how much different, but there was very, huge variation depending on where you happen to be. So out on the, the outer coast of the islands of BC, Calvert Island was one of these sort of unusual places where it kind of remained stable and didn't have this big fluctuation. And what that means that's good for archaeologists is that the places where people had been 13,000 years ago aren't now drowned under, you know, tens or hundreds of meters of seawater. Sea There's some of them still accessible. So they were interested in looking for sites like that around Calvert, around, in fact, the, the islands north of Calvert, like Trickett Island. Um, and they found some. They actually were able to find, um, based on, I don't really know how they initially figured this would be a good spot, but something about the geography looked like it would have been promising to early people. They um, they created a dig site, and they did a bunch of sort of shovel tests, as they call them, uh, on Cal- Calvert Island. And... Uh, and I think where these, where they found these footprints, these 13,000-year-old footprints, it was a bit of a stressor for them because they actually could only work at low tide. They had to wait for a good low tide, 
dig like crazy, get down there, and then do whatever work they wanted to do with what they were excavating, and then cover it back up before the tide came back in. And um, I could read it, but but the, I won't maybe go into it now, but the story in the book talks about that moment of discovery that was so kind of amazing for them when they found what they were pretty sure was, well, later they were sure it was footprints. Initially, they were like, this is something. We don't know what it is. So they took it, and they had it carbon dated, and as they excavated more, um, they found that they had they had found evidence of human habitation. And, and do you uh, do you know how it is that those footprints survived when so many other things didn't? Yeah, I mean it's a good question, and I I don't I don't on my knowledge it's been a, actually it's been about I mean the the dirty secret for me as a journalist is it's been a while since I wrote this, and some of that knowledge that I have is maybe escaping me now. Um, I don't know exactly what the explanation is for that. Um, it's particularly in an area like, as I imagine it to be, a sandy beach. How do some prints get filled? They did have, um, and I think we talk about this in the book a little bit, you get this idea that an, an impression made in the beach can fill with material um, like wood, woody material or whatever, and that carbon sort of fills in and then gets covered up. But Duncan and Dara would probably just be horrified by me trying to explain that, so I probably shouldn't, shouldn't try um, but they they did for however however it happened they were preserved and um, they were able to excavate them and send them away and there's a bit of a story around some of the um, the difficulties they actually had because when they sent the stuff away to be carbon tested I think an initial sample kind of got lost and it was some time before they were able to get you know verification of what they'd found um, but yeah they they for however it happened they were preserved and it's fairly rare to find human footprints because even though and I think, again, we talk about this in that chapter about we make you now humans walk, every human in their life probably makes hundreds of millions of footsteps, footprints, which uh, you know, you're know you not going to see on concrete today. But back then, there would have been a lot of them. But even so, walking on soft clay and soft mud and soft dirt, it's very rare to find them. So these prints are some of the oldest found uh, uh, in North America. They're not the oldest, but... Um, they're very significant for sort of what they taught, what they indicate and corroborate around uh, how we understand the peopling of the Americas. In that section, you have um, this little sidebar about ancient watercraft. And in it, you say that um, now there's evidence to suggest that people have been using rafts and boats to, to cross you know, sometimes significant distances of water mm. for 50,000 years. Yeah, and I think a lot of that evidence, because we don't have, like, as far as I understand it, there's not a ton of archaeological record that, that comes out for uh, Europe and North America um, showing those sorts of things. The, the oldest one that has been found for Europe, I believe, or the oldest watercraft that we know of that's preserved in some way that we know it was a watercraft is a canoe, uh, a dugout made out of pine that they found in the Netherlands in the 50s. Um, it's a famous, it's got a name, I forget what it is, but it's a, it's a famous sort of one of the oldest, I think, if not the oldest watercraft ever found. But based on what I think they've seen for, and I think a lot of the evidence comes out of maybe the South Pacific, understanding that what they know about human habitation on certain islands, I think it's a surmise that you make saying, well, there's no way they could have, you know, swam between this island and that island. So we have to imagine that in areas, uh, coastal and, and, and areas that were connected by our islands were connected, they had to be using something, a raft or whatever. And I think for um, our coast here, likely um, that was also part of what 
people would have used to migrate gradually over thousands of years and to move around um, islands and areas on the coast in what was called the Kelp Highway. I could go into that. I don't know if that's something you want to touch on, but um, it certainly seems probable and, 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 and very likely that people had to be using boats for many thousands of years. It's it's just it's so interesting, you know, to think about it because when you live in the sort of archipelago um, of islands here, it's you know, it's, <laughs> and we let ourselves feel kind of isolated and you know, or like everything is so far. If you know, if only we could go and buy something somewhere, <laughs> um, and then you just think, well, like come on, we can just get over it. People have been figuring out a way for just thousands of years yeah, to, to I mean, get around. It's true. And as well, the, the thing about where we live, what we might not always understand, because we don't necessarily, many of us live this way, particularly those of us in cities, but uh, the reason that we, I mean, I'll back up a bit here. So like a lot of the theories around the way that people moved out of Asia, across Beringia and into the Americas, um, used to center around this corridor between the two ice sheets. Sort of, there was the, the Laurentide ice sheet and the, the Cordilleran ice sheet. Um, anyway, I don't remember which is which, but there was a corridor that sort of ran between them. And if I'm not mistaken, that corridor comes down through Alberta. Um, but it used to be thought that that was really the only way it happened. Now, I think increasingly, the consensus is that a lot of that early movement, like 13, 15, maybe 18,000, even more years ago uh, would have happened by what they're calling the kelp highway which is just really this idea that people would have come through the the parts of the coast that were not covered in ice um when the ice age was still a thing and were it's not like migrating not like we gotta get we gotta head south let's go south and and, and archaeologists that i've spoken to have been at pains to tell me please don't talk about it as migration <laughs> not like they're hell-bent to get to tierra del fuego um, there, people are just living, and gradually, as people live over hundreds and thousands of years, they they you know they split off, clans move, people people shift to new locations. But over time, you see that that gradual peopling of the Americas by people, uh, a lot of them coming down this kelp highway. And the reason they call it the kelp highway, in some in some respect, is because it's a vastly, as 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 indigenous people know, vastly rich terrain for food and habitat and um and there's lots of, of as they say in Haida Gwaii, you know the tide is out the table is set um clams all kinds of foraging things um fishing marine mammals uh, lots of food sources uh for people that would have been in those times moving gradually down the coast as they expanded mm. i just think it's such a fascinating thing too to think about you know Again, the paleoecology of that time and what was Beringia like? What was this coast like? It wasn't covered in cedar trees. Probably maybe also not dug fir, these sort of massive forests. It would have been important, maybe more of a low, low-lying low vegetative geography. Maybe, as we've known, some different kinds of animals. Like we were just talking on a call at Hakai with, um, with Duncan uh, the other day, and he was talking about discovering... Um, they're doing a lot of DNA work now, and I won't go off on that tangent, but... Um, he was talking about how they found, I think, on Vancouver Island, some of the exciting DNA was in it was a red fox, which is extinct here now. Um, but this was many, many thousands of years ago. And just it's interesting to me to think about what inhabited um, this area before uh, before the, it was the ecosystem as we think of it now. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the kelp in some ways is easier for me to imagine and, and kind of get a visual picture of over time people kind of following the 
the you know the food the food source um it's so hard to imagine this area without trees i mean again i I just keep going to like scotland or like places exactly Exactly. like maybe it was more of a scrub like almost like a tundra like thing i I have no idea i mean i know that people probably do but that's not an area that that i remember enough about to be able to speak to but it's it is an interesting thing to conceive of how how different the world was then so the next section in the book, you go into glaciers. And, um, you know, I, I feel like this is like people really relate to this idea with climate change and what's happening, the idea of, of all the melting glaciers. But can you help us make sense of um, what melting glaciers have to do with the environments here in and around the Salish Sea and how they are already impacting those changes are already impacting us? Yeah, um, there's multiple areas there that, that um, uh, you know, the way that glaciers relate to so much of our, our ecology. I'm just wondering if maybe I should read something here. Give me one second and see if I can find a, a section that sort of speaks to that in a, in a more yeah. direct way. One second. Um, I feel like I want to go through and just describe some of the um, the photos to people. Uh, there's yeah, this... <laughs> there's, there's lots of great shots here of Sam and other things. Maybe what I'll do is I'll read this one, that's just a little section of this um, that touches, and hopefully not too technical a way, on um, the way that glacial melts and um, this constant, like I, I think that some there's a way that glaciers sort of act to keep temperatures in streams and lakes and everything kind of down in our area. And we've counted on that, and fish and ecosystems have counted on that for millennia. And as these things are warming up and these glaciers are disappearing, it's, it's a real concern. So I'll just read this. Um, I'll read a section here and it'll talk to that a little bit. As I say, for me, it's been about a year and a half since I've written this and my, my knowledge of being able to talk about these things now. I'm like, no, give me a book. Let me read from the book. Um, okay, so this section was called Rocks, Coffee, and Fish, and it's in the, the section on glaciers. And I'll just read this bit here. As mountain glaciers melt in western North America, the fresh water they contain swells streams and rivers, ultimately ending up in the coastal waters of the Pacific. This water is not just water. Thanks in part to glaciers, coastal rivers carry materials that have profound effects on the oceans. As these ice rivers flow down out of the mountains, they behave like sandpaper. So ice rivers meaning glaciers. That's another way I'm speaking about glaciers because they really are like frozen rivers. They are spoken of as moving and acting like rivers, they just happen to be solid. Just as a river will erode a bank as it's flowing, so will a glacier also kind of erode away the sides of the valleys that they move through. So that's what this is touching on. So as these ice rivers flow down out of the mountains, they behave like sandpaper, scraping and scratching the rocky beds below them in a process known as abrasion. These rivers of ice also occasionally freeze, plucking away large chunks and knobs of bedrock, and all of these processes produce abundant sediment. So I won't, again, get into too much more of the details here, but what this, what this is saying is that as these glaciers move through our landscapes, they're scouring off minerals that can sometimes be, like if you've ever seen, um, I don't know if you've been uh, to, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name, that beautiful uh, park between just at the border of BC and Alberta, uh, incredible glacial lakes though, but you see the color, the turquoise, incredible turquoise color that they get is because of this kind of flowery sediment that has a kind of incredible refracting quality. So you see these lakes in BC and and Alberta and other places in Canada that look like they're tropical in some way because it's got this incredible electric turquoise color. 
That's because of this um, this flowery sediment. But that's not the only kind of sediment that they scour off, but that's one of them. So you get all these minerals that, um, that glaciers are bringing into our systems. And, and by that, I mean our rivers, our lakes, our streams. And all of these are building blocks for of the food web. So there's um, phosphorus and iron, um, uh, other, all, all these other kinds of carbon, of course, is huge. Nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen all form with these things um, to create stable molecules that are then the base of the food chain. So if we want healthy rivers and healthy oceans, it's critical that we have this movement of these kinds of nutrients coming into the system. It's not something that a lot of us think about when we see a glacier or a river is how much in there of those minerals and the things that are being carried in there is really relevant for the very fundamental basis of the microorganisms at the very bottom of the food web, which then are eaten by this other slightly larger organism and slightly larger, slightly larger, all the way up from single cells, all the way to salmon, and then from there up to the, the, the megafauna. So there's a huge way in which glaciers are helping with the building blocks of life in our ecosystem. They're not just these sort of inert, frozen masses that are, you know, vaguely interesting if you walk on them. They have a real in- integral role in the ecosystem. Amazing. So um, <clears throat> I feel like there's so much we can, you know, kind of like talk about with with uh, with glaciers. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more um, in that area what um, the work that's happening right now to understand how it's already affecting um, the changes here. Do you mean how how uh, glacial melt is affecting? Yeah, but also, I mean, you were talking a little bit about the importance also in temperature regulation in the water, um, et cetera. Like, do we like how much do we know about that, and how much is that actually covered in the book? Yeah, I, I, at this point, I because things are so dynamic, and there is a lot of research going on. Um, Ian Giesbrecht with the Hakai Institute um, and Isabel Desmarais, who actually are featured in that article that that I wrote about the landslide. Um, these are the types of folks that are out there taking measurements of temperature, um, looking at the way that temperatures in rivers in BC and different areas um, are changing. And I don't know if I have much I can add to that, except to say that. I think the signs, um, unfortunately, as we're all too used to now, are troubling, and the trends are troubling. And um, we're, I think we're, one of the things that came to out of my research in this was that, how do I say it? Like, there's lots and lots of troubling changes happening around temperatures and, that, are, that are coming out of these glacial-fed fed rivers. Some researchers were, were wanting to point out to me that you can't, you can't always negativize it. In other words, change has been happening for a long time. I don't, I don't, I don't want to use that to sort of say, oh, climate change isn't bad or what we're doing is bad. It's terrible. But there are going to be winners and losers. And some of these scientists are saying, well, as things shift, we're going to see that um, rivers and streams that didn't have salmon further north or didn't have a lot of the biodiversity that we're used to because they're too cold, they're too much ice, Salmon are going to be colonizing those likely, and they're going to be creating habitats and, and colonizing habitats that don't currently exist. Personally, I think of that and I go, well, I'd kind of like things to kind of stay the way they are. But one thing to think about in the midst of all this dynamism and change is that it's not all lost. There might actually be some changes that actually create uh, biodiversity in places that are at this moment 
to ice and cover to have biodiversity. Um, that is one element of it that, that, that came out to me in the research. That's Again, it. it's not, it doesn't cheer me up hugely, uh, but it's, it is an interesting thing to remember. So talking a little bit about that, uh, the biodiversity and salmon, and tell us a little bit more about the marine food web and the connection between salmon and phytoplankton. Yeah, um, so there's, I don't know where to begin with that, but there's, there's uh, a lot in that we talked about in the book around marine food webs. And a food web is just what it sounds like. This, I used to have this idea of, you know, the food chain. And that's, you know, that's one way of thinking of it. But in reality, it is more of a web. It's far more interrelated than a, than a chain, sort of a linear chain. Um, but what a food web in the marine environment means is, you can probably get it pretty quickly, is that little stuff gets eaten by bigger stuff. Um, little stuff that gets eaten by bigger stuff is also feeding on, as I said, some of these minerals and nutrients, and they're feeding on dead stuff that's material that's already sort of is, was alive, now is not alive, and they feed on that, bring that back into the system. It's all about these, this kind of flow of energy in the system, and most of the flow of energy has to do with fat. Um, there's, uh, there are these plankton that will, um, and as they collect and as they are eaten by um, other organisms, that little bits of nutrients and fat that are gathered in these zooplankton, um, which are a key food for, for salmon, that's what they feed on. Without these little tiny guys that we can barely see, um, salmon are hooped. They, like most salmon, sockeye uh, and others, they don't just feed on herring, particularly at different life stages. They're feeding on very small things. Um, and they're at the bottom of the food web, which tends to be underrepresented and under sort of under-considered by most of us who aren't scientists. And that's why it's important when we're looking at, you know, ecological health that we have. It's great that we have species like salmon and bears that are way further up the food chain that it can be indicators for us of the health of a system. But we're getting better, and Hakai Institute is, uh, is really one of the leaders, I think, on this coast in that regard, of working to understand this invisible food web that underpins the health of salmon. If we don't have uh, a really healthy, uh, invisible ecosystem, part of the part of the food web, if, if these microplankton, these zooplankton, uh, are not thriving because of whatever factor, whether that's acidification or uh, warming temperatures, that's a big problem for everything further up the chain. Well, I, I love the idea of the invisible ecosystem, and it couldn't be a better lead up to one of you know, perhaps the most fascinating section in the book where you talk about um, viruses and the importance oh, yeah. of viruses to ocean yeah. life. Yeah. So, yeah. I, well, you know, what, let me do one thing. So I, I wanted to just mention, so in the context of this, this food web um, notion, it's, it's for that idea of invisibility that um, one of the researchers, uh, Brian Hunt, uh, who works with Colleen Kellogg and other folks at Hakai on food web research, he cited a common stat, as he told to me, that in a drop, one drop of seawater, so that's about a milliliter, you can find a thousand protists, which are these little protozoans and algae. Um, along with that, you can find a million bacteria and 10 million viruses. So that gets us into this subject about viruses. It starts to be, for me, it was a little mind-blowing. Um, 
I think I don't really know. I think maybe there was uh, in the last couple decades, three decades, we've really come to a better understanding about the role of viruses in the ocean. I don't think that there was much awareness of, of how critical viruses are in the ocean and just generally in, in kind of the, the whole ecosystem, even terrestrially speaking. So I had the good fortune to speak with Curtis Suttle. Um, he's a biological oceanographer and uh, an expert in virology, particularly marine viro- virology. He's at UBC and um, has done a lot of great work uh, collaborating with Hakai, and um, he's looked uh, to viruses in the Arctic and in lakes, and uh, and as the book says, uh, even uh, 3,000 meters high in Spain, Sierra Nevada, because interestingly, again, this is a fascinating thing I learned from him, uh, viruses, I think, from what I remember him saying, is that they get um, sort of taken up with water vapor, and they can then particulate out and what you'll actually see them um in these environments in in these high snowy environments sort of almost like a rain that that is appearing in and like you're getting these viruses coming into these environments from other places so i hope curtis that i've got that right (laughs) i'll actually read what curtis said to a couple of my questions here um that i really found fascinating so i we had a little chat and and you can see it in the book but i'll read a couple of the um a couple of the answers so he, he told me that viruses are the most abundant biological entities in the oceans. In the microbial world, they outnumber marine bacteria by about 10 to 1. So that, that adds to a big number. In a liter of coastal seawater, there are typically about 10 billion viruses. And he says, if you take the minimum number usually found and multiply that by ocean volume, you get 10 to the 30th power. And he says, this is a number called a nonillion, N-O-N-I-L-L-I-O-N, a nonillion. He says, if you put all of the viruses end-to-end, all the viruses in the ocean, you put them end-to-end, they would stretch millions of light years into space, farther than the nearest 60 galaxies. So, I mean, a virus, here's something we can't see. And, in a, and, and there's enough of them in the ocean, and there's enough of them, there's 10 billion of them in a liter. So just that minuscule little thing could stretch for millions of light years like that. I was like, that can't be right. I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. Uh, this is you do this. It's strict. This is straight, straight math. So that that was a really fascinating thing to me to think about this incredible um, amount of viruses that are in the ocean. Um, that that goes to the point. Well, so what? Like, okay, so there's lots of viruses in the ocean. What about that? Well, this this is another thing that he told me that I found was really interesting. He said, viruses are critical in the ocean because mortality is the key to food webs. In order for life to exist, there has to be death, where organisms become food for other organisms and populations are kept in balance. In ocean environments, viruses are key agents of mortality. Now, that's a nice way of saying they kill stuff. Um, Whether you're looking at bacteria, fish, or marine mammals, viruses are responsible for killing about 20 to 30% of the living material in the oceans by weight every day. Now, this is kind of wild, too, because when you think about the weight of, of living matter in the oceans, you, I, I, my mind immediately goes to the megafauna, uh, seals, whales, you know, tuna, big fish. I'm thinking of all of that. But the weight of biomass in the ocean, actually, um, is hugely resp- related to microbes that we don't see. So in that liter of seawater, I don't know what the weight of it is, but there's a weight of biomass in there that we aren't even aware of. So viruses are acting to recycle 
and bring into the food chain, as an example, like all of this bacteria. They are killing all kinds of bacteria that then becomes food for something else. And I just want to read one other one other thing here, if I can find it. Um, uh, yeah, he said, um, okay, so we always think about viruses, at least as humans now, particularly coming out of COVID, as like those damn viruses. Like I personally have a real hate on for viruses when they interact with my life in a way that I don't, I don't want. Um, but he, he kind of is pointing out here that viruses are so essential to everything that we ought to take a baby, have a different attitude towards them. So he says, um, I asked him, so well, I said, well, it's a shocking number, 20 to 30% of the ocean's biomass dies every day. And he told me, yes. And one of the ways that happens is that viruses control the blooms of microorganisms. So when you get these blooms of algae or, or of, of bacteria, um, viruses are one of those sort of defense mechanisms, if you will, that is sort of turning those blooms from being something that might suffocate or kill lots of other organisms um, by turning by killing those things in turn. So I'll, I'll just read this last little bit here. Um, for example, one of the big formers of blooms that we have in coastal Pacific regions is a type of algae, heterosigma akashiwo, which kills fish. There are several different viruses that will rise and kill heterosigma akashiwo. So when populations get really dense, so when this when this this bacteria is blooming, causing and jeopardizing fish populations, viruses will propagate quickly and in many cases cause that population of bacteria to collapse. This is why a bloom situation is actually pretty unusual because viruses are always working in the background all the time. And when a certain organism or phytoplankton gets really dense, that's when viruses are likely to become most important. Oh, I just... <laughs> and then I won't even go into it now, but there is, I do encourage you to read, if, if you don't pick up the book for any reason, like Curtis is just fascinating. And he goes into talking about the way that viruses, in a very brief way, uh, are actually, they became part of human evolution. And, and in fact, humans, somehow, the way that humans are is unraveled with our assimilation. And this is something that I didn't understand before I did the book, and I still don't understand well enough to explain. But, but over time, we assimilate chunks of, of DNA from other uh, species into our own genome. And if it weren't for viruses, humans, as we know ourselves to be, uh, wouldn't exist. So that's just gives us a little bit of a different take on um, those pesky viruses. I just want like a whole thing just on marine virology. I mean, what I know, a thing. I it's know. just it's a whole... <laughs> we, we've been talking with, with people about, well, Curtis needs to do a book. So maybe we'll, maybe we can stir. You've got one reviewer right yeah. here. Yeah. He may already be doing one. So <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So from viruses to epidemics, let's talk about the sea star wasting epidemic. What can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, wow. Okay. You're you, you putting me through my paces here. Let's um, let's talk about that. So, uh, this, the, the sea star wasting epidemic is still a bit of a mystery, actually, in terms of what caused it. Uh, there's a link to viruses because it seems likely that it was a virus, but it's it's not sure whether that was or not. It's actually remarkably difficult in um, marine epidemics. Excuse me to to determine. Uh, what the cause was. I, I think in the book we say, and I'm forgetting now, but there's, it took a long time uh, for some of these other marine epidemics, like in the coral, there's epidemics affecting coral in the Caribbean. Um, there was an epidemic um, that killed, what was it? Um, 
in California. I don't remember. There was an epidemic that wiped out, uh, I don't think it was sea cucumbers. It was something else. Anyway, but it takes a long time for researchers to determine that. And in many cases, they have sea star wasting disease. They haven't determined it. So I'll tell you what it was. It was a disease that between 2013 and 2015, it, it just wiped out billions of sea stars in the Northeast Pacific. Somebody did actually put a number to that, and I think it is uh, reasonably uh, assumed that it was in the billions. So, you know these, um, you know sunflower stars? You know what sunflower star is? Like those big yep. hubcap-sized yep. ones. They have like up to 26 arms. I mean, they were they were just so abundant uh, up and down the coast. And by that, I mean like really from Alaska all the way down probably to Mexico, um, they, they, would, they would carpet, like in House Sound, I saw photographs uh, that one of the photographers of the book had where they were just literally making a carpet of the seafloor. They were these massive swarms, which were actually puzzling to scientists because they, they weren't really thinking it was mating behavior. There were just so many of them. I don't know. They would make these swarms, and they were literally making a carpet on the floor of the ocean. So uh, they're gone, almost, almost all of them now, just absolutely gone. This disease, which... Maybe a virus, maybe an amoeba, maybe it's polymicrobial, meaning it's an interaction of various microbes. It turned them uh, to this dew, basically, and they just dissolved. Um, and that other, I mean, it's tragic. And the other tragic hit, there was lots of them. But the one that we're most used to seeing, for those of us that grew up on the coast going to the beach, you know, you would go down there and you'd see a pisaster, which is the scientific name uh, for the ochre star, which most of us just, we, we just call it, when we think of a starfish, that's what we think of. These purple or orangish or brick reddish colored starfish, five arms. They're just everywhere on the pier pilings and, you know, crammed into rocks. So those were just, I mean, you couldn't come up with a more common sight for, for a kid to see on the beach. And now they're just not. You might see some and you might see some young ones, but this disease killed them all. Like it was just epic. And uh, in fact, the researcher um, that I interviewed, uh, Chris Harley, um, was talking about how he was tracking this when it was happening. And, and it was just heartbreaking just to see these creatures just dissolving before his eyes on beaches in, in Vancouver. And so, um, yeah, it was a, the sea star wasting these was this terrible thing that happened is what they don't what they know, and is assumed to be true now is that whether or not it was a virus or an amoeba or a polymicrobial, um, again, it comes to climate change, that warming waters appear to be something that inflames and, um, what's the word, just, just intensifies uh, this disease, whereas it might have only happened in small little areas in the past. Um, warming waters in the ocean, heat wave events, which is something we talk about in the book, the blob, um, as ocean waters warm, whether that's temporarily or, you know, sort of permanently, it's, it's making uh, this kind of disease more prevalent. So we're, the, even though there was a epidemic between 2013 and 2015, it's not necessarily over. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's still there. It's still like there's still, it's still at present in the ecosystem and there's still, I think, lots of sea stars dying from it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what that was about. And, and when I was writing the chapter, just a couple of side notes, I mean, what was fascinating about the chapter beyond kind of the horrors of that was learning about the sea stars themselves and um, their, their anatomy. Like, I didn't know this, but uh, I think most, if not all of them, have eyes on the tips of their arms. So when you see a, pick up a sea star, 
sort of at the very tip. They have a, it can't really, it's not an eye really in the same sense as ours, but it can sense light and enough that it can, I think it helps it to distinguish uh, shapes in the water. So that was fascinating. Um, they also have uh, the ability, as a lot of us know, is that if you tear off one leg, if it contains a little bit of the center, the center disc or enough of that center disc, that one leg will make a whole new sea star. Eventually it'll sprout arms and, and those little tiny arms will you know, grow into a whole sea star. And one of the other things that I thought was fascinating about, about that biology um, of sea stars is they have something called catch connective tissue, catch connective tissue. And what this is, is it's this function. It's not a muscle. It's not a muscular reaction, but it's a way that the tissue can, can be at will softened and relaxed so that they become just sort of floppy or stiffened so they become almost rock hard. So this is what enables... Um, these sea stars to anchor themselves into these crevices or onto walls and resist um, the action of waves that would try to wash them away. They can kind of cramp themselves in and flex, but because it's not a muscular action, it doesn't require much energy of them and it's super efficient. And it's just a fact, it's all these kind of strange otherworldly things that I was learning about them are really, were really interesting um, in that chapter. So it's it's amazing, and you mentioned speaking of strange and otherworldly. You mentioned the blob. Can you tell us briefly yeah. what is the blob? Yeah, um, the blob was a was a heat wave, so a marine heat wave, um, and it was one of the largest and longest lasting marine heat waves in the planet. Now there have been heat waves that have been tracked, um, well, for a long time, but really the way at the scale we're talking about. I think that one of the big ones was in uh, in Australia, not all that long ago, like I think uh, 2009, something like that. Um, but this was one of the largest. So it stretched from the Bering Sea to Baja, California, um, and it saw temperatures spiking uh, massive areas of, of uh, the Gulf of Alaska and elsewhere, you know, up to two and a half to three degrees warmer and, and beyond. So... Uh, well, as people, humans, terrestrial beings, we're like, oh, two and a half degrees, you know, is that really such a big deal? Um, it turns out it is. Uh, we did some, we did an article on this for um, CEUS, which is the um, Canadian, what is it? I forget the, what that was called. Uh, Canadian Integrated Ocean Observing System. So this is a, uh, an institute and a, and a body, or rather a body of researchers and research that is going on. And for them, we, we did a sort of a, an overview of, the, of this heat wave. And in that research, we were just trying to say, well, listen, what is it like you know, if, if temperatures went up for us, um, like they've gone up in the ocean, what would that be like? So um, it's basically like, imagine, to imagine what it's like for sea life, imagine that, I think it's probably true for most of BC, but we looked at temperatures for the city of Vancouver. If the city of Vancouver were to experience conditions like the blob, Personally speaking, we would be subjected to a year-round temperature of Long Beach, California, south of Los Angeles, where highs are, you know, 20 degrees Celsius all year. So what what was happening in this heat wave was lots and lots and, you know, all the species that are used to a pretty, you know, regular, pretty steady state temperature were suddenly being blasted. And it didn't just go on for a week like oh that was that was a heat wave this went on for over the course uh, with fluctuations in different parts of the sea but like for over a year um so that's kind of gives you a sense of how bad that 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 was and 
what was observed because of that. I mean, we know that, you know, like in Vancouver, you know, we don't grow a lot of palm trees here. We grow some, but it's really not perfect. It's not, this is not an environment suited. All the, all the things that we're used to here, cedars and all these other trees and all these other wildlife are not suited to temperatures like Long Beach, California. So similarly in the ocean, uh, all of this heat had widespread effects. Um, yeah, it was, it was catastrophic. I mean, the blob uh, was linked to algal blooms. Uh, I mean, these were, and we're talking not just like, you know, a few miles. These were blooms that reached from Alaska into California, like massive blooms of algae. And this was, um, among other things, part and parcel of what they saw around widespread deaths of uh, fur seals. They're called Guadalupe fur seals. Um, sea lions, pups starving, food, food, food stocks just plummeting for some of these species. Fin and humpback whales were stranded um, in record numbers. Uh, they had toxic algae. Um, and then there were these massive seabird die-offs. They, there's estimates that, um, uh, what are they called? Um, it's not a, it's a, yeah, it's a, a mur, M-U-R-R-E, a type of a common mur. There were uh, probably about a million of these died due to the effects of the blob just in 2015 to 2016. Salmon also got hit. So it was just terrible. I mean, there, was, there, was, there were crashes of populations across the spectrum um, as a result of this heat wave. And again, that probably goes back to our point earlier about the, the, the marine food webs, which is that no doubt those temperatures have a huge effect on um, the lower echelons, that invisible food web, and those reach all the way up. So that you start to see, you know, this cascading effect um, of, of sort of just terrible things happening for, for sea life. It's it's an, uh, this is this, there's so much more in the book, um, so uh, I I feel like we everybody should get the book and so they can <laughs> they can read it themselves and learn about all this and so much more. And can you tell us a little bit about the projects that you are working on right now with Hackeye, especially the big slide? Sure. Yeah. Um, the big slide just came out on the Hackeye Institute website. If you just search the big slide Hackeye, you'll find it. Um, we're doing, the Institute has a, a great relationship with Hackeye Magazine. That's sort of part of the Institute in a way, but not, not directly. It's a sort of an arm's length uh, thing. So the Institute is now doing some stories that are sort of just based on the Institute website, and that's where you can find them. We're looking at particular stories that just relate to um, areas where the Institute has itself done some, some particular research. So the big slide is about uh, the Elliott Creek slide, which you may have heard about, where, um, I don't know what it was now, 50 million tons or something of, of, uh, of rock uh, slid off a mountain and created what's called a hazard cascade, where the rock, traveling at something like 170 kilometers an hour, slammed into Elliott Lake, which is this big meltwater lake of about two kilometers long at the base of this, um, this slope uh, where, the, where the landslide happened, and that created a tsunami, and the tsunami spilled over and created this huge flood that massive amounts of water. I actually pegged it in the article of, um, if you imagine an aquarium the size of four soccer fields and as high as the Eiffel Tower, that was the amount of water that just went surging down this valley. And um, unfortunately, the, the net effect of that at the end, uh, along with scouring all of this forest on the side of this valley, it buried a lot of significant um, coho, chum, and pink uh, and Chinook salmon habitat um, at the base of, El or, or sorry, at Elliott Creek and the Southgate River, where the Elliott Creek meets the Southgate River. So that was a 
huge event. It's been very interesting to researchers who are looking at um, and actually have just published a paper in geophysical research letters. We were working with them closely. Um, it's the, the piece tells about sort of the mechanics of that um, and talks about these kinds of events, glacial lake outburst floods, and why they're becoming or will becoming more common, and um, talking about the effects of this a little bit on the, the Hamalco Nation, because um, those are important spawning grounds, and they're, the Hamalco Nation uh, depend on those kinds of uh, those fish, and it's a big part of their cultural um, world to be able to interact with the salmon that are coming out of that, that watershed. So it's, it's a problem that's continuing to linger because there was a logging camp uh, there with a bunch of machinery that got buried and is still leaking toxic uh, oil. And unfortunately, as I understand it to date, there's not been much in the way of funding uh, to help clean that up. Uh, I think there's been some frustration. I won't speak to that now, but my understanding from Eric Blaney, who's been working uh, with the Hamalco First Nation as sort of the technical advisor, is that there's a lot, lot left to do in terms of trying to remediate that uh, and looking at ways that they would be able to, as a nation, to try to bring some of that back on a, on a faster timeline than, than, than nature would do it. It would certainly be, I think, decades, if not many decades, for that area to come back to, to the kind of uh, salmon populations that it had before. Uh, and this is the Hamal- uh, Cortez is um, on the ancestral and traditional lands of the Hamalco people. So many people here have been watching um, mm-hmm. just the impacts that we're even seeing some of the ripples of here. So, oh, really? Okay, wow. Um, yeah, really amazing, um, and an amazing uh, job of journalism. Um, again, uh, if. Uh, people go and visit org backslash the big slide. Um, it's it's stories, it's videos, it's pictures. So it's very multidimensional and helps you get into the experience. Well done. Thanks. I just want to give a shout out to everybody at Hakai that like I was working on the writing side, but there was so like what makes that piece to me kind of exceptional is these incredible geospatial uh, videos, drone videos that we had that the team from Hakai, like they took a helicopter up there and did some drone video. They did these incredible 360 photos interactive where you can you know, spin yourself around in the landscape. There's just a lot of beautiful um, elements to that, that for a multimedia story that um, couldn't have been done without such a great team of people at Hakai. I'm just so impressed by the Hakai Institute. We are really lucky to have you as neighbors um, and to uh, just benefit from the journalism, the research, the science, the neighborliness, uh, the education that you're bringing to this area and to the place that we call home. Um, So I have a great deal of appreciation and respect. I'm wondering if you have any sort of, if people want to learn more um, besides going out and getting heart of the coast, uh, what else can they do to learn more about what you're working on, but also about um, Hakai's different journalism and projects? Yeah. So there's um, just one thing that I think is really cool is that um, the the media team has uh, multiple things they're doing. So if you look for uh, on YouTube, um, Hakai Institute, they've got a channel. They've got many, many great things they're working on. Um, there, there's um, This is a ways out, but there's a story about um, working with these whale bones, this whale that was found on the Calvert Island. There's, they're tracking this guy on Salt Spring who 
uh, is rebuilding the whale skeleton. He's the one that did the whale skeleton at Beauty Biodiversity. So there's a lot that's upcoming, but that's just an example of some videos that they do. They do great videos on their YouTube channel. They've just released something called Long Story Shorts, um, which is very short sort of explainer things around very, very particular um, types of uh, ecological and marine biological stuff. The most recent one, the one they just started, was about um, actually the way that mussels and, and other creatures will broadcast spawn to, to propagate in the ocean. Um, lots of great stuff they're doing, so I really encourage people to check out the videos. We're going forward um, on the Institute side with um, some uh, further stories. We're going to be working with some great writers, Chris Pollan, who wrote that book on the peace and the endangered peace, the peace in peril. He's doing a story for for us about um, autonomous underwater vehicles, these drones that are going deep and surveying the ocean. Um, we've got James B, James McKinnon, who wrote The 100-Mile Diet, and that great book, um, The Once in the Future World, and uh, The Day the World Shop Stopping. Stop Shopping is a great author. He's working with us on a story about the aftermath of the atmospheric floods. So over the next months, and we'll be releasing, I hope, some of these stories into the wild. And uh, and meanwhile, there's so much great material that the Institute is doing. If you just go to the site, uh, the Hack Institute site, and look at stories and blogs, um, and sort of, I think it's called stories and blogs, I mean stories and videos, and also just check out the YouTube site. Tons of great work coming out. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of that work with us today. Um, it's much, much, much appreciated. I have a great deal the of pleasure. respect for what you're doing. Thanks, Tai. And I just want, just want to put one last thing, which is to say that the book also talks about sort of the, the genesis of the, of, the, of the Institute itself. So if people are interested in knowing about the journey that Christina Monk and Eric Peterson had and, um, in sort of making the Institute, which is pretty interesting to me, I was always curious, how did, how did this come about? That, that story's in there as well. And I will remind listeners that we have also been really fortunate to have Eric come on to Folk U. So we have a little bit of that story right. captured um, in our Folk U uh, archives, too. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, I, you know, we won't rest until we we have told more and more of these stories. Um, thank you so much well, for being so part much. of it. I hope you'll come back and join us again, Tai. I'd love to anytime. Um, thanks again. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Bye bye. And I hope you'll uh, continue on with us, uh, listener. You are listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at cortezradio.ca. We have been learning a little bit more about the heart of the coast, or the biodiversity, the ecology, uh, even some of the archaeology of this area with Ty E. Bridge, who works for the Hakai Institute and is the author of many books, including Heart of the Coast. Um, and we just were talking most recently about uh, this um, multimedia piece on the big landslide that happened uh, last year um, in late 2020. So I know that was really uh, on a lot of people's minds and is continuing to have a major impact, particularly in the Homoko Nation community. But we're feeling it all over um, this area. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that, it's just an incredible piece. You can go to hakai.org. That's H-A-K-A-I dot org backslash the dash big dash slide backslash. Maybe it's a hyphen, the hyphen big 
hyphen slide backslash. Oh no, my grammar teacher would be so upset. Um, uh, and again, if you go to hakai.org, you can also go to their blogs and video section and start to see tons of the additional uh, pieces that they're doing. And as well, they have a YouTube channel. The Hakai Institute has a YouTube channel that go, does a number of different kind of multimedia video type explainers, including um, a series called Long Story Short. So, so much uh, good work bringing the science and archaeology uh, of this area and making it feel real and relevant through, through you know, storytelling. So, well done. All right, I hope you'll stay tuned for a little bit longer because we'll take a small break and then I will come back with some messages and, and updates that are happening in the community. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk You Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't think of to think about Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses? Don't get me wrong, I am thankful I can think But I'd be thankful to be also so able not to think. 
Get your toes topping and body moving with Nat King Kono's Lunchtime Locomotion. Thursdays 11 to 1, grooves exploring round-the-world upbeat pop, rock, jazz, fusion, and world beat, nostalgia, and adventure, spirits lift with the Lunchtime Locomotion, Thursdays 11 to 1, here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. There's a scratch on my finger, for instance 
KTZ Cortez Community Radio at 89.5 on your FM dial or CortezRadio.ca. Here we are on the deep end of the Salish Sea. I'm going to do a bunch, I mean a bunch of community announcements after more than two years of very little to announce. (laughs) There is a lot going on. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is the Folk You Radio Show. We have an amazing show today with author Tai Bridge. And now we have a little bit of time for something that I don't always do, which is to tell you what is going on as of Friday, April. I don't know what day it is, actually. <laughs> oh, Friday, April 8th, 2022. So let me give you first a few exciting social opportunities. Wish you could get out and kick your ears, listen to good music, or just, you know, smile and see other people's teeth. Well, you can do it. Here's a few things coming up. On Friday, April 15th, there will be a Cortez Coffee House at the Hollyhock Lodge. Uh, This will follow all health protocols that are in place. And which I think might just mean that don't come if you're sick. Um, it probably can't be, be beyond a certain size, etc. But that's pretty much it. 
So it starts at seven, ends up ends at ten, and it will feature such local legends as Gemma Hicken and Rick Bachner. That is the Cortez Coffee House at uh, the Hollyhock Lodge on Friday, April fifteenth, seven p.m. Then we also have an interesting and new sounding event, an Earth Day Cannabis Cook-Off and Potluck. Um, So some kind cooking at Manson's Hall, uh, Friday, April 22nd from 6 to 11 p.m. Um, Now that is no underage people um, for that event. So that is an adult only event um and you let's see what else um now let's get into you know those events where we can also share what we know let's the let's talk about the learning events coming up there are a bunch of things one i am really really pleased to announce that folk university with our sponsor cortez literacy and dakota uh, literacy solutions is providing regular weekly tech support. This is the answer to all of those for the last five years who have said, oh my God, could you help me with my e-reader, with my uh, computer, with my email? Maybe you even have more difficult tech questions. That's great. Maybe you even have soundboard questions or you just want to see if you can stump the tech expert. Bring them all. That is uh, free to free to the community every Wednesday, 3.30 to 5.30. You are welcome to tip and or leave donations to help keep this um, tech spurt service going, featuring Cleo, our local tech spurt, every Wednesday at the radio station building. So CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio, sits in the Manson's Hall parking lot. Thank you, SCCA. And you can um, partake in this Folk you tech expert service with Cleo every Wednesday uh, starting at 3.30, 3.30 to 5.30. So that began last, this, that began this week and continues every week. So hopefully you will join her if you didn't last week, this coming week. You know what? I, I actually have some tech things. I'm realizing that I should probably go to that. Um, uh, and... That same day, Wednesday, April 13th, there is a talk with Brian Peckford, um, a talk and a Q&A that is at Manson's Hall, Friday, April 13th, starting at 5 p.m. PM. Brian Peckford is the formal, former premier of Newfoundland, Labrador, and he is the last living first minister who helped negotiate with 12 other ministers of Canada and signed the Constitution of Canada's Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That happened in 1982. Pretty amazing how recent the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom actually, Freedoms actually is. So the last living minister who was part of that signing, uh, really an important part of, of history, an important member of our founding here. He has recently filed a lawsuit against the government of Canada for unlawful travel restrictions. Did you know that many of your fellow Canadians still cannot get on a bus, train, or airplane? 
That's right. Um, so this w- this is going to be really interesting. 40-minute live lecture. So come on out. You can see that at Manson's Hall. There will be a big screen. Uh, and, um, and Brian Peckford will actually be on the screen, but he is going to be live for this event so that you can – um, come and ask him your your Q&A. And if you cannot make it to this, you can also join us by Zoom. So if you want any more details on that, you can reach out to the SCCA or to me at you at folkyou.ca. So that's the letter you at folkyou.ca. Again, that is um, a Q&A with Brian Peckford on Friday Oh, no, on Wednesday, April 13th. Oh, I need to tell her that she it's, keeps saying Friday, but it is Wednesday, April 13th. Woohoo, that's going to be really interesting. Okay, what else? There's so many other things going on. Um, every Friday, there are, oh, I should actually check. <laughs> Before I say every Friday, I should check. Um, so I'm not going to say that yet. Uh, what else do we know that is happening oh at folk you radio not next friday but a week from that friday april 22nd on earth day from 1 to 3 p.m we will be doing a special are you prepared for the big one folk you live event this will happen under the tent on the CETA property right here behind the radio station and we will be broadcasting it simultaneously live on the radio but come out it's going to be an amazing event we have a whole bunch of local um, uh, emergency preparedness people and just other really smart people who kind of understand how things work and sometimes how they don't on the island to talk about what will happen with the fire station what will be happening with the paramedics what will happen at the clinic if we live through something like a big earthquake or an extended event that separates us for for a long time from the mainland so we already heard last week from the strathcona regional district and uh, sean koopman who is our emergency uh, preparedness uh, coordinator It was an awesome talk, learned a lot. And now we're going to learn a little bit more about what it's actually going to look like on the island, both what these um, full, you know, what the people who spend their lives helping to keep us safe and protected, uh, what they will and will not be able to do, and then what we might be able to do as a community once we get beyond (laughs) the, you know, the initial whatever, and we're trying to figure out how to to live and um, and rebuild after in a period a long period of of separation, isolation, collapse, whatever it is. So that is going to be an awesome event, Friday, 1 o'clock, live event under the big tent on the CETA property and also broadcast on the radio. So please mark it on your calendars and plan to be there with us. Again, if you have any questions about that, you can email me at the at you at folkyou.ca. That's the letter U at folkyou.ca. And if you look around, you'll start seeing flyers to remind you of that awesome event that's coming up. Okay, let's see what else. I am... Oh my goodness, there's so many things. There's a lot more things also. There is the second annual fundraiser and online bird trivia night. Middle Natch Island Stewardship is inviting us to join for the birds on Wednesday, April 13th. 
uh, for a online trivia night. Um, let's see. Oh, all sorts of cool prizes. A five-hour Oakover kayak tour for two um, and more. So that um, is happening virtually. If you want to learn more about it, you can hopefully go online to the Tideline. There's a lot of details um, there about how you can join in. And uh, Susan Rybar is the one helping organize that. And let's see, what else? Wild Cortez and Cortez Island Museum are open today um, and all fr pretty much every Friday for you to stop in and experience what's going on there. Uh, Saturday, April 16th, Birding 101 with uh, our beloved local naturalist, George Sirk. Cortez Island Museum and local naturalist George Sirk invite all bird enthusiasts to join for Birding 101. This is a first of three sessions. All bird enthusiasts are invited to come out. Um, there are some Cortez Island bird books that will be available both before and at that time. You can meet at the museum at 957 Beasley Road if you'd like to join in. You do not need to pre-register, um, but it's always nice if you do. And you can do that by emailing Cortez Island Museum and Archive Societies at, at Archive Society at C-I-M-A-S, C-I-M-A-S at twincom.ca. Don't forget twincom is with two M's at the end, T-W-I-N-C-O-M-M dot C-A. Once again, you can get more details on our lovely local Tideline. Hey, speaking of Tideline, do you know that you can donate to the Tideline to help keep it going? And um, there's a big donate button there. Uh, if you'd like to do that. And speaking of donations, did you know you could donate to Folk U Radio and the Cortez Community Radio? Uh, I want to call it a collective, but it's not really what we are. We're a society. Uh, you can do that by going to cortezradio.ca and there's a donate online button, you know, or you can just pop a check into the mail and send it to Cortez Radio, Cortez Island. V0P1K0, I bet it'll get here. Um, or if you see Howie or any of the other members of the Cortez radio station, you, we love big chunks of cash, gold, whatever you have. It'll get here, don't worry. So thanks so much for tuning in. You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. We love hearing from you, and I love hearing from you. Tell me what you think is essential to cover in Folk U Radio or, to have a long, or who you'd like to have us have a longer conversation with. And maybe that's you. I'd love to get to know more about you and what you know. So send me an email, you at folku.ca.